Welcome to CFO Insights, the leading podcast for finance professionals in disruptive tech, brought to you by the Startup CFO community. I'm Guy Hutchinson, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as being a tech CFO myself. In this episode, we're going to talk to John Pleen, one of the founding team from Yazoo. John is a finance professional come serial entrepreneur, and thereby an expert on what it takes to deploy financial skill sets to build businesses from scratch. In our discussion, we explore how to impress investors, even during difficult macroeconomic times. He shines a spotlight on building a team in China, and you might be surprised by some of the attributes brands really need to have to succeed in the burgeoning world of social commerce. Johnny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, well, look, I mean, um, you've been a member of the Startup CFO group for a little over six years. Um, always been a very valued member. Um, really enjoyed uh, the talk you did a few years back and um, seeing your amazing journey, right? Because you've had a finance career. You founded Pouch, which you exited, and now you founded your brand new business, Yasso. So um, great to have you on the podcast. Like we, we love to talk to people who kind of bridge this world of finance and building new ventures as a founder. Great, thanks for having me on. So what do you want to talk about today? So why don't we dive into your background, right? So, so I've just sort of alluded to broadly what you've done, but, but, but maybe talk, talk for like one or two minutes about the kind of things that you did in your early career and how that formed your vision for founding your first venture pouch. Great, we will do. So I studied economics and Chinese at university. Uh, took a gap year after uni after getting a job at Ernst & Young doing corporate finance. Lived out in China for five months. Um, and yeah, came back and started this job. Very quickly realised that EY wasn't a place for me. I think on my first day on the job, my line manager said, why are you here? And I said, I'm here to qualify to go off and start a business. And she said, no, you want to be a partner? I was like, I don't. And it was a tough three years from there. Uh, but I qualified. And as soon as I qualified and was able to leave, um, I left and set up Pouch. Uh, so Pouch was a browser extension that automatically sourced voucher codes. Um, we grew it to about 150,000 users before exiting to a company called Global Savings Group in 2019. Great lesson, great journey, uh, amazing experience. And, you know, the fact we exited as well for, for more than we put in was, was a great result. But I always knew I wanted to move on and, and do something else. So I got back in touch with a few people that I'd met on my startup journey in my early career at EY. Uh, and I got back in touch with the two guys, Adam and James. I met them at an EY China trade day we put on back in like 2014. They both studied Chinese at Oxford University together and they were running an agency called Tong, T-O-N-G, that specialized in doing the marketing of Western brands into China. I met them and I wanted to make a small investment into their agency, but they didn't need my money. They bootstrapped the business to seven figures. They'd always been profitable. However, they did have an idea for an e-commerce venture that built on their 10 years of market entry knowledge for Western brands into China. Very scalable, um, huge, huge market opportunity, but they didn't have the same finance and startup and fundraising ops background that I had. So we thought, actually, rather than me making a small investment in their agency, why don't we set up this new e-commerce venture together. We weren't sure what it was gonna be or what it would look like at the time, uh, but that spark of an idea is now uh, our new e-commerce venture, Yasso. So that's an amazing story, Johnny. And, and to what degree were you conscious when you started to talk about the agency opportunity, that there was a 
fortuitous mix in the skills that you brought, right? Because I think most of us that have been in the startup scale-up ecosystem a while, we know that great founding teams, they, they're bringing completely different things so that you balance each other up. How did you get the sense that, 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 that this was potentially a great team? So this wasn't a decision we took lightly in terms of working together. I took a risk leaving a, a very comfortable situation. They took a risk exiting themselves from, from their agency. But the conversation started in... 2019 when I wanted to make the small investment and we only actually set up the business together at the end of 2021 so it was almost three years of conversations to realize actually this is something that we wanted to do together so by the time you know it came for us all to quit our jobs and to pursue this we had a really good understanding of our balance of skills Adam has sold to brands for the last 10 years so he was very focused on sales James even though not trained professionally is is very technical taught himself how to code so he looks after everything tech and product um, and i basically do everything else so the fundraising the ops the financing the vision the goal setting the internal measurement the oil that helps the other two do their bits within the business yeah fantastic so that sounds like the lesson there is perhaps be be, be patient in how you form the founding team yes absolutely you know, there are some great accelerators like Entrepreneur First that will you know, put you together and really test that relationship quickly and then break you up if you're, if you're not right for each other. We did that testing over a, a two-year period where we got to know each other. Obviously, COVID happened um, after we met, very China impacted, it impacted their agency, so it kind of slowed conversations totally down. But when we were kind of through that and we were having the conversation again, we realised that actually we've got a super complementary set of skills and we are an incredibly strong founder team, not just because we're all second time founders, they had their agency, I had Pouch, but because we have incredible domain expertise in China and Chinese e-commerce in general. Uh, we all speak Chinese to varying levels of fluency. I'm the least, you know, I can have a, a conversation, order food, read some basic documents, but Adam is super fluent. He can you know, translate Chinese legal texts and hold a conversation with anyone on, on any topic. So you'll be hard pressed to find a better founding team than the three of us for this space. And that's why we were able to raise our pre-seed round without a, without a product or without any revenue. Mm. So why don't we dive in on that? So I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to learn a bit more about um, some of the challenges around China. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's focus on doing a pre-seed where you don't have the product yet, you've not evidenced things like you know, product market fit, you don't have your first customer. Uh, how does a founder go about doing that? So before I dive into that, I wanna talk about a little bit about what Yasso uh, does and, and is. So we've built a social commerce solution that allows any Western brand to sell their products D to C to Chinese consumers using our technology platform. So if you are a Western brand, today trying to enter China, you've got two options. You can either sell on the Amazon equivalent of China, a platform called Tmall, T-A-L-L, owned by Alibaba, or you can go it alone and try and set up your own entity. Neither of these options really sue any of the new up and coming brands. They're either too expensive, too complicated, or don't give you the right access, i.e. Your products are hosted on one platform, let's say Tmall, but all the attention are on platforms like Little Red Book, WeChat, Douyin, which is TikTok, the social commerce platforms where Chinese consumers are spending most of their time. It's the equivalent of saying, I'm gonna build a massive business only on Amazon, but actually all the 
all the eyeballs are on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. And 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 what does that mean in terms of the practicalities as to how you pitch that into investors? So, speaking to investors for the first time about this this business model was was challenging for a number of reasons. Firstly, we're a UK company. You know, our network is within the UK angel and VC space, but most UK funds know nothing about the Chinese market, which is surprising given that China is the largest consumer market in the world. It's so crucial for our economy and the global economy, but most people know next to nothing about mm, it. It's a glaring gap. Absolutely. And what we realized is people fell into three categories. People that said, Johnny, we back you. We know what you did with Pouch. Adam and James are fantastic. We love what they've done with Tom. This is mainly angels. I'm, I'm going to invest. Or we had people that said, I know you know, nothing about China, I don't want to touch it, I'm out, doesn't matter about your background. And the main group of people were, I know nothing about China, but I'm interested, tell me more. So that means you, one, need to spend time explaining the market dynamics of Chinese e-commerce and why our solution um, is great to fix those issues for brands. You need to then explain how our business models work and how the tech's going to work, talking about platforms that are only in China that most people wouldn't have understood and to then convince people that the market size and the opportunity and the competition is such that as a you know a three-person founding team with with the right team so there's a huge amount of convincing you need to do to even get to those first few yeses then having got those first few yeses what was it that allowed you and the team to go and close that funding round we did have a few key advantages when going into this fundraise firstly we had incredible domain expertise in the team like I said before, very hard to replicate that level of market knowledge and language skills and technical understanding. Secondly, we had an undeniably large market. People may not understand China, but they do know it's the largest consumer market. So two things that people say they know, they look for a pre-seed, great founding team, massive market, we had those covered. However, we started our raise in like March 22. Obviously, Russia had just invaded Ukraine. There were political tensions. Uh, the markets were in a bit of free fall, so we thought when we came into this fundraise targeting um, two and a half million dollars as our kind of top amount we wanted to invest. Arrogantly, I thought we're going to do this in three months. This will be easy. The markets are really, you know, high right now. Um, we've got great market size, great founding team. We'll we'll walk this. In the end, it took closer to eight months to close the round because we're not we're raising a pretty big pre-seed, two and a half million dollars. Most pre-seeds are about half a million, 750,000. Um, and we were doing it in a time where political tensions were quite high. And whilst actually it made no impact to our model whatsoever and our ability to operate, our ability to make money, anything, it did make a lot of people nervous. And when you have political tension combined with a market you know little about, combined with you know other markets in a bit of free fall, it's a very easy no. And most of the time people do not say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm saying no to this investment opportunity because of X, Y, and Z. They simply said no, political risk, I'm out. No one likes to admit they're not as smart as they think they are. They just give an easy out. So that made the fundraising quite challenging. But in terms of the process, uh, I really looked at this as, as a three-stage thing. Firstly, let's contact all the angels that we know from from Pouch and from our network that we've met over the last six years. Secondly, let's go to what I'd call tier two or tier three VCs. These are VCs that are nice to have on your cap table, but 
no one's going to jump on board because they're leading the round. And then after we worked through stage one and stage two, we went to stage three. So this would be VCs that would really make a difference, could write large tickets and would allow other people uh, to have the confidence to come in. This took a long time. So I think we were stuck on 800,000 for around six months, but we were at a point come late August where we had 800K committed from angels. We had two VCs saying we want to put in 250,000 each, but you need a lead. So really that money wasn't wasn't really on the table mm. because it's very easy to say that. I could say to anyone, you know, I'll give you 250 grand as long as all these other conditions are met. So it meant there was money there, but um, not really accessible. And then we went through a stage of speaking to a lot of tier one VCs. Often the objections we had were, we just don't understand the market enough to make an informed decision. They see a lot of deals. Are they gonna spend the time to, to actually get to know us? But we were introduced through one of our angel investors to Playfair Capital. Playfair are a high conviction, low volume fund, meaning they take a long time to get to know businesses, mm. even at the pre-seed stage. And they understood our founder background, they understood the size of the market, and they spent a lot of time with us really understanding the opportunity. And because we had the data from the agency, because we had other examples to point to of like great execution, we were able to convince them to, to lead the round, not after they said no, so Chris, the MD of Playfair, actually told us no. And on the follow-up call, rather than just hear some feedback points, we told him all the reasons he was wrong and why they should still invest. He managed to come, you know, turn that no into a yes. And he says that's the first time in all his years in venture he's, he's had a no turn into a yes. And he said in a great blog post that we're the right type of risk. You know, massive market opportunity, great founding team. Yes, you're not B2B SaaS. Yes, you're not FinTech, but actually, this is what venture's meant to be. You're meant to take bets on massive opportunities and great people. After Playfair came in, the whole round was a, a, an absolute whirlwind. We went from 800K of commitments to 3 million of commitments um, in under 10 days. And then we closed around at two and a half million mm. and were able to choose much better investors. So a case of just keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, it was very difficult. But we knew that we had a good enough opportunity. And if we just kept going at it, we'd, we'd get the money in the door eventually. Yeah, 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 amazing story. So, so really, if you paraphrase that, there's a part of your funding process where you've needed to convince somebody, uh, your, your purely investor, in fact, that you are the right type of risk, that the, 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 the attributes that you bring mean that actually, if you're going to place a big bet of this sort, this is the right type of risk to be taking. 100%. Yeah, amazing, amazing, and and, and um, I'm I'm intrigued about the China angle. Are there are there specifically things be, beyond the sort of lingual ability and the educational background of the three founders? Are there specific things that you can say to sort of investors in the UK that would help to reassure them that 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 there will be successes in China? Absolutely. I mean, we've we've already had our own successes in terms of doing over 120 different brand launches. Uh, in China f through the agency. We, we built an MVP called WeCommerce that was an integration between WeChat and, uh, and a payment system, which we sold to six brands and generated around half a million of revenue. So we had our own proof points of showing like good execution in the market. Um, but China is like the 
golden road for so many brands that think I want to get there. Uh, it's just very difficult to. But the ones that do it successfully can build massive, massive businesses. The issue is, is that structurally, because of how the e-commerce platforms work and because of how difficult it is to set up your own, your own entity, most people are boxed out of the opportunity. Hmm. What we're doing at Yasso is building the technology to allow brands to seamlessly sell into the market. So you know, you've got brands like Aesop that are doing hundreds of millions of revenue there. We know there are smaller brands that today may be doing five or 10 million of revenue, but have the opportunity to be doing 100, 100 million of revenue in China. They just need the right channel and tools to enable them to do that. So is that a key part of what you offer, is that you are identifying a brand of a certain size that perhaps doesn't have the scale of an Aesop to be able to, be able to go in there and solve all of these things themselves and drop real capital and real effort to understand all the regulatory considerations and that you take that piece off the table for them and therefore allow these slightly smaller players to um, tap into that opportunity with, without having to go through all of that. Absolutely, nail on the head. So we set up all the infrastructure once for ourselves. That means setting up our own Chinese entity, hiring our own team, building our own payment integrations, building our own logistics integrations, everything a brand would need to do for themselves that they just won't know how to do or don't have the capital or time or skill set to do. We do it once for ourselves and then we can run any number of brands through that system. So yes, right now we're targeting beauty brands. There's, there's many reasons why beauty may need to do with just the growth in the market and the margins on the products. But we believe there are beauty brands out there that are doing five or 10 million of revenue today in the home market, but have all the, um, the right product ingredients, the right packaging mix, the right price points, the right brand to be 100 million plus revenue businesses uh, in China within mm. you know only a few years very interesting and, and why did you pick beauty like what 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 were the sort of data points that made you think that was the area that you'd focus on at first so growth rate in China for Western beauty brands it's one of the fastest growing categories of products out there especially mm. clean beauty brands and serums in particular uh, the products have a high margin they have a low shipping cost and they have a very low return rate unlike fast fashion where you could get 50% return rates mm. because we're doing something called cross-border e-commerce meaning that the products have to be they have to be overseas products and they're sold directly into the market um, we need products with a very low return rate otherwise it becomes very expensive to, to deal with those so some practical factors some um, qualitative factors and quantitative factors but beauty is the, the main category we're focusing on right now yeah, amazing. And, and do you have a sense as to what the second or third category could be? So lots of opportunities. Um, we could be looking at supplements, technically different to beauty, different claims, different product registrations, high-end alcohol, coffee, um, other types of cosmetics. Really what we're doing here is building a system to sell any suite of products into the Chinese market. But right now we need to be super focused just on the beauty category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting. And one, one thing that's struck me, Johnny, as we've been talking, so clearly the founding team was super well qualified to go and do something like this. Mm. And part of the challenge with someone like China, partly it's lingual and, and just the scale of it, but there's also some cultural aspects to doing business over there. Yeah. I mean, are they real obstacles that you find time, that, that, that you find yourself working on and trying to solve? Yes, they are, um, especially when it comes to hiring. We are a Western business operating in China, but we need to build a global culture. So the first hires we made into the business needed to be, I would say, westernized, 
having worked for some Western businesses before. Um, this comes down to things like working style, um, discipline, working independence as well, and also kind of respect for the boss. Mm. In some businesses, if the boss is not there, just things will not get done. And then when the boss is there, everyone looks like they're working very hard. There's right. a, a Chinese proverb which means the mountains are high and the emperor is far away, which kind of means if the boss isn't there, things aren't going to get done. We needed to make sure we hired people that didn't believe in that ethos and could drive things forward, even if we weren't physically in the country. Yeah, and, and, and broadly, how many years of experience maybe in, in more Western businesses do you look for to find somebody who you, who you feel would kind of operate in the manner that, that you'd ideally have? Um, everyone that we've hired happens to have around like at least seven years experience working for Western businesses. So we hired um, the ex-VP of marketing from a company called Super Ordinary, which is an American business doing something very similar to us. Mm. They grew from zero to about $250 million of revenue in about three years. So it's possible to get that level of scale in a business like ours, and especially with a hire like Fiona. We hired the ex-head of um, Asian markets at Le Creuset. So she'd worked at Le Creuset, Denby, and Royal Crown Derby, all big Western homeware businesses, so she really understands that culture. And we hired the ex like product lead for Emma Mattress. So he's a Chinese guy that set up the, the zero to one e-commerce operations for Emma. So they one, they've got like a deep understanding of what we need to do to achieve our goals, but they've all worked for Western bosses and they've all understand time difference and getting stuff done regardless if we're there or not. Now we've got that core top management layer in place we can hire people that you know don't even speak English necessarily because we know that we've got people that we trust. That that is fascinating. Yeah, I, th- I think in all startup stories, the, there's a big piece around how do you hire the right fit, and obviously, in what you're choosing to do, there, there are much bigger considerations, and you've been able to poach people from some really well-known brands there. So well done. Thank you. Um, I, mean, I mean, there are some horror stories we've heard when people have hired incorrectly, and I think people only report the horror stories; they don't report the really great stories. <laughs> you know, it's possible that. If you hire a um, someone that's basically a techie that's going to be purchasing from different suppliers, he may choose one supplier that he he says is really good, but really he's getting a kickback, and that's common practice and things yeah. you need to look out for. Uh, you need to be careful about who's holding your effectively like stamp of approval, like physical stamp in China, because mm. whoever holds the stamp, as in the physical stamp, can sign documents, take money out of bank accounts. Wow. So there are horror stories if you're not set up correctly, which is why we would encourage brands to use a trusted partner like us, because if they try and do it themselves and they're not ready for it, it can go really wrong. Yeah, yeah, there's some great insights there. Uh, so we should turn now to actually um, some of the piece around your personal founding journey, right? So. We're a group. Startup CFO's got 800 members. We're all over the world, but but, but mainly UK because we started in London. Uh, and honestly, when you spend time with people in the group, quite quite a lot of CFOs are thinking, I might want to be a founder one day. Mm. And nearly all of them are reporting into a founder and, and partnering with a founder. Mm. So I'm kind of interested, right, like your second time founder journey. Like, like are, there, are there any lessons that, that are kind of like sensible things people should know about what you what you end up doing the second time around that you didn't do the first time? So I feel we've just become so much more efficient in the second time, uh, onboarding staff, building out OKRs, building processes. We've done it before and we learn the hard lessons already. So for example, we were a Google-based company. Um, 
we knew that Google doesn't work in China without a VPN. We'd set up everything on Google. We learned this and we knew we'd have to go through the pain of switching over to Microsoft. We could have just ignored it, got VPNs for all our staff, kept on Google to have you know reduced short-term pain. But we knew, like second-time founders were like, no, that's the wrong decision. Let's go through the, a little bit of pain now mm. to make sure we're not going through a massive amount of pain in the future. Um, just like lessons of, of, of maturity when it comes to just operating a business. Having difficult conversations as three founders that have done it before. Yeah. One of our best strengths as a team is having good, open, difficult conversations. We had to have one this week over a mistake that I made. It happens. How do you deal with it and move forward? But I think one of the biggest differences between first time and second time is my eyes have been opened through the process of building and selling pouch. The level of ambition that we hold as a founding team for this venture compared to our previous is, is, is night and day. When I was raising money for Pouch, I was 25. I just left Ernst & Young. It was a case of, please give me money. Like, I don't know what I'm necessarily going to do with it. <laughs> this is a case of, you should be feeling privileged that you've got the opportunity to invest in this business because this thing's going to go absolute gangbusters and you're lucky to be along for the ride. And it's that mentality shift that comes with experience that has just allowed our ambition levels between the first and second business to be, to be totally different. Fascinating. So, so really, as you get more experienced as a founder, you shouldn't really worry that, that, that some of your ambitions could be huge. That That's okay. That will help to drive you through. Um, be be open to taking pain now uh, and, and, and see if you can build that kind of chemistry where you don't sweep stuff under the carpet when it doesn't work out. Be, be very open, very, be very transparent. Do, do what a finance person might call a... Um, a post audit uh, absolutely break it we down. had a post audit this week <laughs> break it down into stuff that didn't work um, finance people love that language uh, that, that's, that's really fascinating and that actually links us to um, something that we spoke about just before we started to record this which was you know you are one of the few people in the group mm. there's maybe three or four others uh, who have had a founder journey and, and you had a finance career mm-hmm. uh, and we have as I said earlier a lot of um People on their finance career, where a big part of their job is to partner with the C-suite, particularly mm-hmm. with the founder. And founders are made up of really different stuff compared to CFOs in in the majority of cases. And you've kind of been in both camps. So mm-hmm. you know, like you you're not at the stage where you'd have a CFO yourself yet, but but you will do in your two's time, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Like what what do you think the lessons are for CFOs to optimize what they can bring to partner best with a founder? It's a great question. Um, just to dive a little bit more into my background before I, before I answer it. So I was a chartered accountant, but I worked in corporate finance, so I never actually run the books or done any analysis. I was an Excel monkey at, at, at EY, which was fine. I learned a lot of good discipline there and a skill set that allowed me, I think, for Pouch to not worry about the finances, but it was a, very, it was a much smaller um, enterprise than what, we're trying to, than what we're trying to build now. I know that I'm going to have to hire a CFO for Yasso because... I'm still learning about dual entity accounting and managing two, two, um, two entities. So if I was thinking about having a CFO partner with, um, with a co-founder or a founder effectively, it's thinking about why, why are you being hired? You're being hired to run a process that the founder probably doesn't know how to do. So be confident that you've been brought in because there's a skill set that's lacking. Or if this founder knows a little bit, they won't know as much as you as a, like a professional CFO. So you need to be like founders can be I guess they think they're right they need to have conviction in their ideas to be a good CFO you need to be able to put a founder in their place and say you're actually wrong 
and coming with any data, any data points that you can do to show them why they're wrong is really important. And I think you're also there to remove any headaches from, from process. So to partner with me effectively, I brought you in because there's this whole area of the business that I don't have time to operate or I don't think I can do as well as you. So making sure that you know you're there to remove headaches and you're there to make the founder's job as easy as possible to grow the business is, 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 is really important. Yeah, so, so, so really it's you're looking for the person in that CFO role to persuade with data and to sort of bring, bring some structural things that might not be in the founder and, but, 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 but to bring them in a persuasive manner. I think so, yeah. You're there to, I mean, everyone uses the term, the term value add, but you are there to cover an area of the business that the founder just doesn't have an eye on um, and, need, and need support. But if they've hired you, you must be good at what you're doing. If you believe in the business, you must be good at what you're doing. So having yeah. that confidence to know that actually, if I see there's something wrong, as long as I have the data to back it up, I should never be scared to like bring this forward and, and explain the situation. Um, and then on the other side, you know, if you're bringing in a professional CFO, the ambitions for the company must be pretty big. You must be growing pretty quickly. To help the founder build the plane as it's flying is going to be very important as well. So if you've come from a big four audit background, you're not going to have the same processes in place. You're going to have to build those from scratch and being comfortable with that chaos. Uh, and to not get bogged down on it, not to get too annoyed when there probably isn't the structures that you're used to, I think is really important as well. It's so interesting to, to think about the way that the partnering piece works with CFOs, but we should focus now on what's next for, next for Yasso. Mm. Uh, so like on the back of your pre-seed, um, what does the next three years look like? So yeah, we raised our, our pre-seed in November 22. And we are working towards our, our Series A. So we know there are certain metrics we need to hit. There's certain growth numbers we need to achieve in terms of signing brands and launching them in the market and generating revenue for them. Those metrics are like pretty clearly mapped. And then we are going to plan to raise a, a monster Series A uh, towards the end of 2024 that will help us expand beyond just the beauty category, really productize what we're doing and get the brand partners we're working with you know, doing hopefully eight, potentially even nine figure revenues in the market. Mm. That's that's the ambition. We're gonna be the invisible layer that's gonna make all these other consumer brands incredibly successful in a market that is just too important to ignore. Yeah, that's uh, that's a beautiful vision, that's for sure. Uh, brilliant, Johnny. Look, um, it's, it's a shame that we have to bring this to a close, uh, but it's been great to have you on. Um, it's been great to be here. We've been recording the podcast now for just over a year. And so we've done in the region of 20 to 25 recordings. And you're the first person who came with something that was distinctly, we're going to focus on a big market as a massive opportunity. And it was not the United States. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so it's been a real pleasure to really understand like your, your whole, whole journey, like even back from like being, you know, being at university and picking up those all important lingual skills and realizing that it, it could take a trio of founders with that type of background to really do something like this. Um, so it sounds super exciting. Um, and hopefully, hey, look, let's, let, let, let's get you back on after your uh, Series A because um, I'm sure it's not all that far away. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me on. You were listening to CFO Insights brought to you by Startup CFO. If you're a finance professional working in disruptive tech and would like to join our global network, 
visit our website, startupcfo.tech, to learn more. This podcast was part of our CFO Insights series of discussions. And if you want to learn more about the Startup CFO Group, follow us on LinkedIn to learn more about our community and the upcoming events. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.